You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, culture in non-human animals. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. Today I'm your host, Ashlyn Noble. Well, every day I'm Ashlyn Noble, but today I'm your host. And with me today I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Jem Newman. Hello. And Lauren Bailey. Defining what culture is is a tough thing for people to agree on, and it's kind of a big, expansive concept, so what to include or not include is often at the center of debates, especially when we want to expand that definition to include non-human animals. Most people would include things like art museums, dancing, religious beliefs, rituals and traditions, etc., under their definition of culture. So it's hard sometimes to understand how whales or insects might have culture in the sense of ballet or baptisms. So even though it is this huge concept, I'm going to explore some definitions so that we have something to work with when talking about culture and non-human animals. I'm doing my uh, psychology and sociology uh, prep for the MCAT right now. And so I have been thinking about the definition of culture quite a lot. Oh, man. Culture, then, defined as the cultivation of bacteria, tissue cells, etc. in an artificial medium containing nutrients. That's the one. Culture, in the words of anthropologist E.B. Tyler, is that complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. Of course, this guy also believed the idea of a linear progression of human society through cultural stages from savagery to civilization. Ew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, obviously, we no longer hold truck with that concept. But some of this definition might still be useful to us. Knowledge, habits, and customs are certainly things that we know that animals have. Uh, let's try the Cambridge English Dictionary, which states that culture is the way of life, especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. Why are you laughing at me? Webster's, Webster's Dictionary, Dictionary defines have, culture as. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going there. There's so, yeah. so many definitions for this. And I just thought it would be fun to explore some of the many options available to us for defining culture. Like, if you ask, I think, an average person on the street, how do you define culture? I think we would get a lot of, like, uh, you know, stuff that we do and stuff. It's a weird, big concept. The Cambridge English Dictionary one the definition excludes animals by specifying people, things that people have. Uh, but the general idea is there. The customs, the way of life of a particular group of beings, that is culture. Those things that are not encoded into genetics, but which develop and are passed on socially. It's argued that one of the reasons that humans have come to dominate the planet is because we're able to pass along our culture with high fidelity. So we can use language and our bigger-than-average brains to pass along not only the cultural behavior, so the thing that we do, but also the whys and the hows, uh, and also the things that we've tried that did not work out so well for us. A lot of non-human animals, pretty much all of them, uh, have a much harder time doing that than we do. So they can pass on some of their knowledge and some of the things that they do, but they would have a harder time explaining the rationale behind it. Quoting from an article by Schofield et al. in Primates, the Journal of Primatology, 
Some disciplines, such as anthropology, archaeology, and psychology, maintain the view that human society occupies a solitary pinnacle in the animal kingdom. This thinking occurs in often cited cases of superlative human achievements, space exploration, modern medical technology, invention of calculus, etc. These cases represent the culmination of the achievements of many persons over multiple generations, each making gradual modifications to the innovative advances that preceded them. That is a lot of big words in a row. What allowed us to get to this place is culture. None of us are born with the genetic information or instinct to do calculus or to fly a rover to Mars. We learn these things through social transmission. Because we learn from those who have been working on these things and are able to improve upon them instead of starting from scratch every time, we've got a recording of what the wind sounds like on another planet, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But I believe, and I think that my co-hosts would agree after their extensive research this past week, that humans are not alone in having culture. Currently, many scientists and anthropologists agree that culture should be defined as this process rather than any particular end product. This process involves the social transmittance of a novel behavior, both among peers and between generations. This behavior is shared by a group of animals, but not necessarily between separate groups of the same species. That last part is really important for research purposes. It's hard to know what things are transmitted through observation and social learning, and which represent a cultural element if all animals of a species do the thing. So if we have, uh, if we observe different practices in separate groups of animals of the same species, it's much easier to determine that those things are in fact cultural and not a genetic thing or an instinctual thing. From an interview with Barbara King, Chancellor Professor of Anthropology at the College of William and Mary, she says, It's widely known by now that chimpanzees in West Africa crack open hard-shelled nuts with rock and stone hammers to extract delicious protein inside, and that chimpanzees in East Africa don't. These East African chimpanzees could do it. They're smart enough. They have the materials at hand. It's just not their way. Similarly, chimpanzees in some places groom each other by clasping hands high above their heads. Others don't. Why? It's not in their genes, and it's not determined by their environments. It's just what these apes learn to do from watching their elders. That's culture. At least that's one arguable definition of culture. Speaking of what these apes learn to do by watching their elders... Huxley never wants to put his... He'll often be holding a hairbrush or something like that at the table, and uh, he will refuse to give it up uh, because, uh, you know, for supper time or whatever, because he is charging, which is is his word. He thinks charging a phone is just using a phone. So he's using his phone, and he doesn't want anyone else to use his phone because this hairbrush is his phone. Any any slightly rectangular handheld object is his phone, and he is using it. Yeah, he and is charging. He sees that at the table, Const- so that's what he wants to do too. <laughs> <laughs> Only on one side of the table. Ooh. So one thing I noticed while reading all of these articles and uh, interviews is that uh, offering a definition of culture within the interview or <laughs> or uh, article is uh, unanimous. They will all give some sort of definition so that you can follow along with what they're saying. So I also really like this excerpt from an interview with two whale researchers, uh, Hal Whitehead and Luke Rendell, uh, about their book, The Cultural Lives of Whales and Dolphins, which sounds like something I need to get and read immediately. (laughs) Quote, Often the biggest challenge in identifying culture in wild animals is the learning from others bit. How do we know that animals did or did not learn a behavior from others? It's hard to show definitively without doing things like cross-fostering or rearing in isolation, which are logistically impossible and or ethically dubious for whales and dolphins. However, humpback song is shared. It changes over time, and crucially, those changes are also shared. Whole populations switch songs at the same time. 
We don't have to do anything but observe it to know that there's no explanation other than learning from others that can account for this. Some scientists dispute that whales, primates, crows, anything other than humans can have culture uh, because the evidence of a system of symbols is lacking, and they argue that these symbols, which underpin much of human culture and learning, are key to the existence of culture. So they argue that without this system of symbols, you can't have culture because that is the defining feature of culture. Lies. (laughs) Lies. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, these whale researchers, on the other hand, say that although there is some evidence that parts of whale song and dialects of uh, orcas, for example, may represent just such symbols, that these are not a prerequisite for culture. And I really like the example they gave. They said that a human cuisines across the world, there was no underpinning symbolic meaning to all of these different foods. But even in places that have very similar ingredients available to them, will come up with wildly different dishes. And that's just a cultural thing that humans have developed. Sure. Apart from language and symbols. So it is my contention that... Uh, Animals have culture, and we're going to explore that more in today's podcast. You mentioned orcas and their language. It mm-hmm. makes me so sad when they put two different orcas in a like a research tank, and they come from different areas of the world, and they don't speak each other's language, and they can't communicate, and it's so sad. Mm-hmm. That's a really great thing to end with, or to, I guess, open it up with, Ashlyn. And, and that's I'm sure that we all came across this as well, that idea that culture is measured in human terms. And Mm -hmm. and it makes sense to start from that thought place because we are humans and we think of that way. But a lot of that, um, by thinking of culture in only human specific terms, doesn't really, it's not really fair, right? We know that other animals can't do, for many reasons, can't do other things. And so to just think that, oh, well, there has to be symbols or there has to be things that are uniquely human, we're, we're trying to make the box too small. Yeah. These whale researchers had a really great line. They said, I'm not suggesting that whales have human culture. That would be absurd. I'm suggesting that whales have whale culture and chimpanzees have chimpanzee culture. And they're different and we're, we need to measure them differently. Uh, I don't like saying it this way because it sounds like I'm special pleading. <laughs> no, they, but that makes sense. If we want to learn about other species, we need to let go of some of our anthropocentric definitions. We are going to start off today's segments with a discussion of tool use in animals, which is so cool. <laughs> so that's a really great thing to to segue into, because even with tool use, that idea of measuring tool use in non-human animal terms versus in human terms is something that's important to keep in mind or that you see coming up again and again. It's just like with culture, we think, oh, well, it should be the specific thing, or, you know, they're only using tools if they're doing X, Y, and Z, but we have to look at things a little bit more broadly. So to start off, I I want to actually talk about the definition of tool use in animals. One commonly used definition of tool use is to alter the form, position, or condition of another object, another organism, or of the user itself when the user holds or carries the tool during or just prior to use. So they're using another object a free object generally, and they're manipulating it in some way for some express purpose. That's the general definition of tool use. So that kind of makes sense, right? We can probably think of examples, yeah, would be or or wouldn't be. But there's actually, of course, 
because nothing is black and white. There's a lot of gray areas in this of what is actual tool use with things. So for example, they look at looking at a group of chimpanzees, they will take some sticks to scratch their backs and, and that. So they'll find a stick and they'll, they'll use it to scratch their back. One group of chimpanzee will do the same thing, but with a vine. So the stick is a free object and they manipulate it. The vine is not technically a free object, but they're using it for an express purpose. So if we're thinking the object has to be free, is it truly tool use? And you might say, okay, well, why does this matter? But then you could say, well, if a fixed object counts for an express purpose, is a cow or a horse in the pasture rubbing against a fence post to scratch itself also using a tool? He's using his little hand. That's what counts. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, I think the monkeys that use vines are worse monkeys because that doesn't sound very effective. <laughs> I am a cultural relativist, apparently. <laughs> Some cultures are better than others. <laughs> Yikes. So, like, do they take oh, one boy. end of each vine and, like, towel themselves in the... I don't understand how a vine I, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't know, but my guess would be they see it hanging there and they sort of maneuver it to rub their backs with or whatever it is. No, I don't. I don't. Don't like it. <laughs> so this is not sitting well with you, Ashlyn. Lines count. Fences, right. So this count. is that. This, but see, that's this the thing, This is another right? hot dog so, sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where it starts getting into that that gray zone. That where do we define something actually being a tool use, and where are they just interacting with their environment in a way that makes sense for them? The hot dog is a tool, <laughs> and is definitely a sandwich. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course, it's a sandwich. It's, a it's not sandwich? even food. Uh, yeah. So is a pierogi. <laughs> What? A pierogi is... No, a pierogi is... Yes, a pierogi is definitely a dumpling. It's a subtype of sandwich. No! Jim, stop! We found our next topic, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) What what category does this food fall into? It'll just be a giant quiz. (laughs) And everyone will be wrong. (laughs) Exactly. Also a sandwich? Matroshka dolls. (laughs) Thank God. Cold cereal is clearly a soup. I agree with that one. <laughs> something, something. But I hate myself. <laughs> I don't. I no no. Cold cereal is not a soup. Hot cereal, I would say, is probably more of a soup. Although it's really more of a stew. Porridge, porridge is a soup? stew. Um, yes, because <laughs> things are melded together for express purpose, whereas cereal is really just holding your, like, or milk is really just holding but your cereal. cereal. milk is like a thing. Yes, but what yeah, happens? Yeah, no, 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 that, no. Laura, after you finish eating all the particulate in the cereal, isn't that then a soup? It has been melded. But see, now we're talking about different things. If you're talking about a bowl of cereal, that itself is not a soup. If you really want to look at that milk but no, see, no, that's more of an infusion but at that point. It's like taking the tea. The tea. <laughs> tea. <laughs> Can we bits? just do this podcast <laughs> This is fun. Okay, let me finish talking briefly about tools okay, and animals. Cool. The, the gray areas are really there, and we went determining whether or not the animal is just interacting with its environment. And then we have to say, okay, well, did this animal actually just adapt for this environment? Or did evolution, you know, provide for this, for living in this kind of environment? So then are they really using a tool? And I feel like that's a good place for the whole, does every animal of this species do this or only the ones in this particular 
area. Like, that would be a helpful way to see. So I see what you're saying, but even if every example of this, uh, or everyone in the species did this kind of thing, it's actually more useful to think of it, is this ingrained in them? Is it an instinctual behavior, or is it something that shows learning? Mm -hmm. So from the definition that I gave earlier, so manipulating it for some express purpose, you want to think of it a little bit more in depth. So you want to think of it as that the animal is using this as an extension of their body. So they're not just hiding under a leaf or, you know, they're not just doing something because that's the environment in which they live and it makes sense, but they're expressly using it as an extension of their body. And there's some sign that they're solving a problem with it, but it's a problem that evolution didn't provide a clear adaptation for. A couple examples of this where the one where it's um, instinctual or habitual, and then probably, you know, it's what the animal does, but probably not actually their culture per se, it's just part of how they interact in the environment, would be something like the archer fish. So this is a type of fish that eats insects from above the water. And what it does is it squirts a jet of water to knock out the insects and then eats them. Those some people, so cool. or it, it, some some will claim that that's tool use. They're using the water in which they live as a tool. But that's just how they hunt, right? They're not thinking about this. This isn't something that they are, as far as we know, adapting to. That's just how they hunt. That is what it is. So that would be non-tool use, really. But a different example would be that classic chimpanzee example, where this would be the example for a lot of, of primates and apes, where they'll use some kind of a stick or a piece of grass or something to use it to hunt for bugs. They'll poke it into ant mounds or termite mounds or something to draw out the uh, the creatures. So they're using that stick as an extension of their body for an express purpose there. At some point, they figured it out. So that helps a little bit to think about it. Now, we'll add an extra layer in there. There are some categories where they call it proto-tool use. So they'll say, yep, this is not just how the the creature interacts in the world, but it's not truly tool use because there isn't that sort of learning or, or cognitive problem solving that's happening with it. So a good example of this, or one that often comes up, is the sea otter. So, or, you know, those lovable sea otters, right? They What they do is they carry a rock with them all the time. They generally keep it in the same little arm pouch that they have, and then they put it on their chest and they smash mollusks and that against it to open it up. This, while it is a bit of a tool use per se. It's more of a repetitive instinctual behavior. That's just how they all interact in that environment. So that would be a really good example of, you know, this is just all otters do that. All sea otters do that. But like that is super wacky to me that that's not tool use though, because that that rock is clearly a tool. It is, but it's also, it would be a little bit different if some otters or if all otters then took a second rock and use that. Because what they're doing is they put the rock on their chest and then they put the shell, like the smash the shell into the rock. If they took a second rock and, you know, sandwiched the, the shell in between it, that would probably be more tool use. And it would also be a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. It, it definitely seems like it is tool use. It's just not necessarily, uh, you know, cultural mm-hmm. right. tool use. So that's why they call learned. it... Proto-tool use that, you know, it's acknowledging they're using free objects for a specific purpose, but there isn't more of that additional learning in with it as far as we can tell. And of course, 
observing animals in the wild, we do as best as we can, and, and, and things evolve over long periods of time, and we've only been watching animals for a very, very short period of time, so we don't actually know how these things are evolving and that. So let's talk about some examples of tool use. We can think of a few animals that are well known for their tool use. I mentioned one. We all have some examples that come to mind. There are some good examples from most different groups of animals, including things like reptiles. So that's, it's pretty cool to see that develops. And back to Ashlyn's point, it's not all reptiles or all types of certain reptiles that will do that there. So there is definitely some culture in there. We'll see tool use for a lot of different purposes. Of course, food is one of the biggest things that we see because for most animals, that is what takes up most of their time and energy. Used for foraging, whether it's something like a stick in an insect mound or sticks or rocks to dig for something, that would be tool use. Again, that's often primates that will do that kind of thing. The example of the monkeys that will smash the the nuts between two different rocks there, that's a really good example. So accessing more food, sorry? In this case, it was apes, actually, not monkeys. (laughs) Oh, sorry. The example I was reading was actually monkeys. Oh, really? So yeah, capuchin monkeys. Some varieties of capuchin monkeys are well known to do that. Okay, I read the most bizarre thing when I was researching this, and I couldn't access the article to get more information about it, but apparently... A capuchin monkeys developed this weird habit starting from just a group of a small individuals where they would poke each other in the eyeball with their sharp pointy fingernails just for fun apparently and this is a fad <laughs> that spread throughout capuchin monkeys it's like a freaking youtube challenge <laughs> that's hilarious i really wanted more information and i could not access it and i was sad <laughs> That's so funny. I can definitely see Logan Paul doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Some more great ape examples here is orangutans. Great ape. Uh Mm. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Orangutans, one of the ways that they will get food is that they will try to collect fish that have kind of washed up near the shore of streams and that. And so it was observed orangutans waiting there had figured out how to sort of poke at the water with a stick to drive the fish towards the shore, and then they could more easily catch them there. So that's a a great example. Apparently, some tool use for hunting is also common in non-human animals. Jem, I'm sure we'll talk about some primate examples, but one that I found was really interesting is actually some varieties of crocodiles and alligators will use sticks as a bit of a, a an attractant for their prey. So what they'll do is they'll go to waterways where certain types of birds are going to be nesting and they'll they'll rest little sticks on their snouts and wait in the water and then when the bird comes they they catch them there but they only do it at the time of year when those birds are nesting. That they so don't do cool. it at other types of year. So that's really neat mm-hmm. because one they somehow get sticks on their snout which is really cool. <laughs> Have you seen where their legs are? Like that's so cool. <laughs> And two, like, they're they're laying in wait for that, but they know when the birds are going to be there. So mm-hmm. they've learned another creature's culture, which is pretty cool. So that's a really great example that I hadn't heard of again. Of course, tool use, will they'll use it for hiding as well. Has anybody seen the uh, the octopus and the coconut? Yeah, yeah. So great. It's great. I hadn't seen it before, but it is fantastic. So if you if you haven't seen octopus and coconuts, basically just Google that and it'll be great. I'm waiting for the octopus to learn how to make the horse trotting sounds with the <laughs> <coconut>. <laughs> Definitely. So This is a great example of the octopus adapting to something that wasn't naturally in their environment. So the coconuts that these octopuses are using are discarded coconut shells from humans that have made their way to the ocean. So they're split in half, cleanly in half, the way that humans would do it. 
whole coconuts would just roll into the ocean and they couldn't do anything with this. But they've learned to find these coconuts. They can stack them up and they can move the entire stack. They've been observed to move somewhere between two and six different shells. And they wrap their whole bodies around it and then use just the tips of their tentacles to walk along holding this whole stack of bowls. And then they will then take two halves and fold themselves into it to hide as though they're inside the coconut. Which is pretty amazing. And then you just have, like, this coconut walking around on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. It's wild. But have they figured out how many swallows can carry the coconut? Okay, I want to say a cool hunting one that I found. It's a way that orcas hunt, and they have figured out that they will target a seal by species, because some of the species of seal, these orcas just don't want to eat, so they don't target them. Orcas are racist. Yeah. And uh, they find a seal that is on... A hunk of ice in the middle of the ocean, and then working together, they coordinate how they are flapping their tails so that a big wave washes the seal off the hunk of ice, and then they share the kill. It's that's amazing. Am- that's My incredible. Goodness. Like, tell me that there's not some learning involved in oh, that. Oh, that's astounding. That's yeah. great. And and that reminded me of actually a not great, great for the seal. <laughs> Nature is cruel. Whatever. <laughs> and racist. <laughs> that reminded me of the example. I just passed over it there. Um, the foraging dolphins in Shark Bay. Have you guys heard of this? I don't think so. This is the best example of that one group does something. So there's this population of dolphins that live in Shark Bay, which is off of Australia, and they take sponges and they hold them over their noses and then they go and forage on the sea floor and they do that for protection. And so instead of catching fish that swim higher, they're digging in the sand, so they need something to protect their snouts there. But it's only this one group that we've never found another group of dolphins that do this in the world. And so they're thinking that there was some kind of founder effect or something where one of them started doing this and then this population really picked it up. Not all of them within the population do it, but this is the only one that will do it. Yeah. There. I actually had heard of those. I just didn't know where they were in the world. Yeah. Yeah, The sponges to protect their snouts from the sea urchins, right? That are on the bottom of the... Really just anything on the bottom, because their snouts aren't meant for digging in sand and rock and things like that, right? So they use the sponge to to just soften the blow there and whatever. Then they they specifically go for the bottom-feeding fish that don't swim there rather than the the fish that do swim. And it's really cute. Mm -hmm. Spongy floofs on the end of their noses. (laughs) (laughs) Tool use in animals is definitely there. There's some gray areas as to what is truly tool use or not, but it does seem that a lot of different types of animals are capable of finding something that is not their own body part to accomplish a certain task. As long as it's not a vine. As long as it's not a vine or a fence post. (laughs) I feel like in most contexts, I am what my archaeology professor called a splitter. I like to have lots and lots of different categories of things. Like if I'm organizing stuff, I just want to label everything. Look at my shocked face. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, I almost want to say like, no, all of it is tool use. Even a cow using a tree to scratch themselves, tool use. That is something that's not their own body that they're using. So is eating food tool use then? They're using they're using an external object for energy. <laughs> for an express purpose. <laughs> no. <laughs> Breathing tool use. Using those oxygen molecules. <laughs> of not having Jem end the show with a bummer story, we're going to have Jem tell us about chimp culture next. 
The chimpanzee, or Pan troglodytes, is a species. I always love their scientific name. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's a species of great ape uh, and the closest living relative of human beings. Chimpanzees are social, uh, typically living in groups of between 20 and 150 individuals. But chimpanzee society is described as fission fusion. Uh, so small groups will frequently split off for a variety of purposes, such as foraging or hunting, um, and will then be absorbed into other uh, larger groups in the area. Uh, so the chimpanzee groups are quite fluid. As Ashlyn discussed in her intro, uh, when we're talking about culture in non-human animals, we're talking about behavioral traditions that are passed from generation to generation by learning and imitation rather than by genetic inheritance. And as we discussed, if a particular behavior is observed in one wild group of animals, chimpanzees in this case, but not another genetically similar group in a different area, that's a clue that the behavior is probably cultural rather than instinctive. So I want to start by talking about some examples of culture that have been observed in chimps. During her decades-long research project into the chimpanzees of Gombe, Jane Goodall observed chimps engaging in a variety of behavior patterns that exhibited significant cultural variation. This included nest building, grooming practices, courtship rituals, and even what has been described as a rain dance. No. Chimps are known to use a variety of tools, some of which have been already mentioned on this podcast, uh, including <laughs> fishing in termite mounds using sticks and hunting galagos with spears. The ability to throw stones and other objects with careful aim has also been found in some groups, a skill that is honed with practice. A group of chimps in Uganda were recently observed using moss like a sponge, using it to soak up water, which they could then drink, a behavior that hasn't been observed in groups of chimps anywhere else. Chimpanzees don't communicate verbally the way that humans do. They don't have the necessary vocal apparatus. And some researchers have observed that this limits their ability to transmit cultural ideas. However, chimps do have a wide range of methods of nonverbal communication, including slapping and knuckle-knocking. And these methods of communication, again, vary from group to group in a cultural way. A 2010 study found that young chimps, this is very cute, frequently play with pieces of wood the same way that human children play with dolls, rocking them in their arms and making them little nests to sleep in. <laughs> oh my god! They wrap them in moss, like little clothing. Yep. Oh, and it's that's especially cute because they don't even wear clothing. No. Why are they dropping their they babies in clothing but nobody knows? Because... Because the wood doesn't have fur, Laura, it's going to get cold. I guess so. That is the cutest thing ever. I want to watch videos of that all day. <laughs> In uh, 2016, new scientists reported on a study that purported to show ritualistic, perhaps even proto-religious behavior in chimpanzees. Biologists in the Republic of Guinea observed chimps knocking stones against hollow trees, which is thought to perhaps be a method of communication or uh, perhaps an aggressive display on the part of the males. But they also observed others piling rocks inside the hollows of the trees for no purpose that they could discern. It's thought that this might be some sort of ritualistic practice. Or, as the Daily Mail headline put it, Is this proof chimps believe in God? Scientists baffled by footage of primates throwing rocks and building shrines at sacred tree for no reason. Ew. Well, yeah, when daily, in doubt, it's for ritual purposes. <laughs> Some research has found that the number of females in a group of chimpanzees correlates with the number of distinct cultural traits displayed by the group. 
suggesting that the females of the group play a more significant role in transmission and maintenance of cultural diversity. Speaking of cultural diversity, nearly 20 years ago, a researcher at the University of Zurich named Carol van Schaik hypothesized that increasing human encroachment into chimpanzee territory could lead to a disruption of chimpanzee cultural practices. A new study out of the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research has now confirmed this hypothesis, finding that in those areas where habitats are disturbed by human intervention, chimpanzees are abandoning their unique cultural behaviors. I'm going to quote here from New Scientist. The team tracked 31 cultural behaviors, such as using twigs to catch termites, in 144 chimpanzee communities across Africa. They used camera traps to record behaviors, scouted for the remains of tools, and studied feces to see if the chimps had eaten things like termites that can be obtained only by using tools. The team then placed the different communities on a map and overlaid a measure of human disturbance, which combined factors like the density of the human population and the amount of infrastructure. They found that in areas with a greater human footprint, the chimps perform fewer cultural behaviors. Each behavior was 88% less likely to occur in these human-dominated landscapes. Wow. End quote. One of the dangers of this loss of cultural diversity, and what they're finding is that chimps are falling back on sort of the innate behaviors and abandoning the learned behaviors, uh, like tool use. They're regressing. So one of the dangers of this loss of cultural diversity is that many of these learned behaviors, like fishing for termites or cracking open nuts, allow chimpanzee groups to gather more food than they're otherwise able to. So the loss of these cultural behaviors can endanger the stability of these groups. Another problem of human encroachment into chimp territory is that groups of chimpanzees can be cut off from each other, eliminating their ability to interact. Mm -hmm. According to Jill Prutz of Texas State University, quote, The fact you don't have the exchange of individuals leads not only to a lack of genetic diversity, but also a lack of behavioral diversity. End quote. This can be mitigated through wildlife corridors, allowing chimpanzee groups that are cut off from each other by human-settled areas to reconnect. But really, humans just need to back off. Of course, it's unlikely that our cultural tampering is limited to chimpanzees. Hell, humans are pretty good at causing cultural collapse among other groups of humans. Hyalamar Kul, who was the co-lead of this investigation, notes that orangutans and capuchin monkeys are also likely at risk, as are whales and dolphins. Did anybody read about the baboons that the aggressive males died off from eating tainted meat in the dump? <laughs> no. so I think these, about this all the time. Me too. These aggressive males that had ruled the troop for decades, they all died off because they ate meat that they didn't allow the other right. animals to eat. I, I was just reading, re rereading it so I would get the, <laughs> This so meat is only fit for baboon king. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not much. And they died. And awesome. within a generation, they had become a pacifist group because it became a matriarchal society. And the beta males or whatever they were, they just fell into line. Yeah. Well, there was no one modeling that behavior mm -hmm. and there was no expectation that this is how you're going to survive, right? Yeah, the toxic male behavior just vanished in a generation. <laughs> That's hilarious. What a beautiful society that must have been. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we've got Jordan Peterson advocating for this all-meat diet. We can do it, people! <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a YouTuber who I really enjoy um, who did a segment about Jordan Peterson's sort of rules for life. And he, you know, he intercuts his discussion of the ideas with him sort of pretending to be Peterson and advocating for these <laughs> ideas. And the last part, it's him as Peterson going through this and he just, he just slowly transitions into, uh, why are there so many songs about rainbows? <laughs> 
I thought you were going to talk because his, his voice, uh, Jordan Peterson's voice, if you've ever heard him, sounds so much like Kermit the Frog. Yeah. It is uncanny. Ugh. It is very funny. Maybe that's at the root of some of his problems. <laughs> it just made me hate the Muppets. No, not really. And rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. So uh, when we were discussing what people were going to do for the show this month, uh, all Lauren would tell us is, I want to talk about crows. <laughs> so now Lauren's going to talk about crows. <laughs> I wanted to talk about crows on the podcast for so long. <laughs> Corvids are awesome. Wait, are you going to talk about that Twitter you follow about whether it's a raven or not? Well, that's one thing that Dr. Kaylee Swift posts is a picture saying crow or no. Okay. It's one of the games she does on her Twitter. I'm not going to be talking about that. Okay, I want to talk about this. It's delightful. Then talk about it. She posts a picture, apparently, I've never seen it, and asks her followers to tell her whether this is a crow or not, and then she goes through and shows all like the little uh, things about whether it is a crow or not a crow based on different features, and I think that's cool. I thought my research for this episode would be super simple. I would rewatch 1994's The Crow and study the main character's aesthetic, and feel bad about Brandon Lee's death, and then spew the info back like I had pretended to read the book. Yeah, it would be good if uh, that had been a union set, and they hadn't gone to a um, right-to-work state uh, yeah. to film it, uh, to keep things cheap, because maybe there would have been some better safety standards. Yeah. Then I remembered what podcast this is. <laughs> we do more research than Grade 11 Baby Goth, Lauren did, and we only occasionally watch and riff on movies. This intro was more funny in my head when I was writing it. <laughs> Instead of watching ghoulish early CGI, I did some reading on the intelligence and cultures found in members of the Corvidae family. Corvidae is a cosmopolitan family, which means its member species are found across the globe. Anywhere you find humans, you will find some kind of Corvid, except for the polar ice caps, Greenland, and Argentina and Chile for some reason. That's weird. That is weird. Do they drink tiny little martini? Yes. <laughs> Pink ones. Cosmo? Let's not let's not have a uh, discussion about what qualifies as a real martini because gin, olive. Well, because we don't need to have that discussion because a Cosmo is a drink of its own. Yes, thank you. It is. It just happens to sit in the same type of glass because there's only so many types of barware that a certain bar will get. Also, those are fun glasses. But is it a sandwich? <laughs> It depends on how the olives are arranged. The olives are <laughs> there are the no pimentos? Yeah. There are no. Oh, well, yeah. See, an olive with a pimento in it, that's a sandwich. <laughs> it's a wrap. <laughs> More of a burrito, yeah. Is a burrito a sandwich? Of course. Mm, yes. It's also a dumpling. <laughs> nope. Nope, because it's not sealed. Nope. You, Does that so make, you've never is, had a mission burrito? Is that the one with the fries? No, a mission no, burrito is like uh, like the big ones, like um, Chipotle, you know, the restaurant mm. that gives everybody... Still not sealed. Well... No, not sealed. Would this bread that you made tonight with the with the rolled up bread, would that count as a sandwich? Absolutely. Yeah, no way! There's stuff inside nope. bread, it's a sandwich. Nope, no, 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 because this is an integral part of the bread. It is different. It needs to be, just like tool use has to be a separate object used for an express purpose. Good to actually tie this back to our show, Laura. Well done. <laughs> 
Okay, chocolate so cherry bread is not a sandwich. You're it's saying really a pizza good, a pizza pop isn't a sandwich. It's a dumpling. It's a pierogi. It's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Like, how does calzone fit in there? It's more of a dumpling, dumpling but not. Like it, okay, I think you, it's gonna you, have you to take fall your pizza into slice and you fold it in half. It becomes a sandwich. No, a pizza is an open face sandwich. <laughs> you have to blot the the grease off of it first. <sighs> so Cosmo, Cosmo birds. <laughs> they live everywhere except Argentina and Chile for some weird and reason. Greenland. Oh, and Greenland makes sense. Argentina like, and Chile. Yeah, why would don't. you live in Greenland? <laughs> Argentina and Chile are connected to other countries that presumably have corvids, though. So what's going on? Is, there's weird. a mountain range there, though, right? That might. That's help. around Peru. Okay. But no, well, but no, like Chile. Well, Chile goes along the coast. Mm-hmm. All I can think of is that there's some other, especially in Chile, like shorebird, not shorebird, but like seabird that just took Out that territory yeah. and just didn't. I'm just looking at the map that no, I was that's, given on Wikipedia. That's fine, but what a weird thing to. Mm-hmm, okay. Go on. It's like, how did the rats know not to enter Alberta? Well, they there was also this bullshit. thing about a certain type of vulture with. It was in Spain and Portugal. And one country allows farmers to take away uh, carcasses so the vultures can't feed on them. So they only stay on the Spanish side of the border because then they can, you know, go after the carcasses in the field. Wait, on the other side of the border, farmers are not allowed to remove... They don't have to remove carcasses out of their field. Oh, okay. So, so, they, so like on the band. one side, they have to. On the other side, it's up to them. And, and the natural order of things was to leave the carcasses for these for these vultures. And since you can't get them on the other side of the border, there is a harsh stop between why they don't go between the two countries. Learning! <laughs> <laughs> so that's not culture. That is interacting with their environment. Yeah. But back to the Corvidae family. What are some Corvidae species, folks? I'm not going to give you crow. Raven. Because, okay. Raven. I think that's all I know. Uh, magpies? magpies? Yes. Okay. There's also the rook, the jackdaw, all of the jay family. Oh, oh tree- like blue jays too? Yeah. Blue oh, jays I didn't jays. know that. Tree pies, which are like magpies. but Tree they're- pies. Yes. <laughs> also a type of sandwich. <laughs> What would that be? <laughs> Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. I just want to do the sandwich cast. It's, it's a leaf and a nut and a leaf. <laughs> a tree pie. <laughs> we got to bake it, but yeah. So, 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 so the package that that Totoro gives May and Sotsky is that a dumpling? <laughs> <laughs> We have to subtitle this one Sandwich Cast. <laughs> You're listening to Sandwiches, the Universe, and everything else. Today on the show, is this a dumpling? <laughs> anyway. Okay, tree pies. Tree cool. Pies. Crow, raven, rook, jackdaw, jay, magpie, tree pie, cho, and nutcracker. Those are all the Corvidae. Okay. A I've lot never of those. Heard of this cho. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. And some of them, like the Jays, I n- had no idea that that was the mm-hmm. same family. Cool. And they all have fairly large brain to body ratio. Corvids have a brain to body ratio similar to non human apes or to octopodes. Oh. It's no wonder that they have some of the most amazing reasoning ability. They are also the birds with the most researched mental faculties. That's human research, of course. Though the thought of crows with tiny lab coats and clipboards is adorable. (laughs) I don't believe corvids are smart enough or sharp enough dressers to devise a lab coat with an arm sigh appropriately flexible to not hinder flight, but they are smart enough to demonstrate self-awareness in mirror tests and to use simple tools to perform tasks. 
A mirror test is sometimes called a mark test and consists of marking an anesthetized animal on a body part that they normally can't see. Of course, the mark is something like a die or a sticker that is not tactile. The animal can't feel the difference on their body. When they wake up, they are given access to a mirror. If the animal sees the mark in the mirror and then investigates it on their own body, that animal is determined to have some self-awareness. This test obviously can't measure self-awareness in non-visual formats, like determining between scent markings or recognizing its vocalizations versus the vocalizations of others, and it isn't a be-all and end-all for self-awareness. It's a fairly good indicator. So far, only humans, other great apes, a single elephant, dolphins, orcas, and the Eurasian magpie have passed the test, while dogs and pandas are among the many who have not. Hmm. There's a video meme making the rounds. I saw it on Facebook. It's of a cat using a mirror to groom its ears. That obviously doesn't stand up to scientific rigor, no matter how damn cute it is. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting that only one elephant has yep. passed the test. One Asiatic elephant has have, done it. Have they done it on multiple elephants and they've failed? Yep. That's very surprising to me. One smart elephant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I wonder if something went wrong with that test and like it could feel it or it smelled different. I don't know. I think it was done like there was multiple recurrences of it, but oh, okay. who knows? But in a podcast episode about animal culture, why bring up the mirror test that measures intelligence? Because I goofed and thought we were talking about animal intelligence until Ashlyn disabused me of that notion halfway through writing the segment. And I didn't <laughs> want to delete that particular paragraph because it was written so well. Well, I, you know, there's a correlation there, too. Yeah. I mean, the ability to, to learn is going to be... Mm-hmm. I think it goes right along with tool use. Tool use isn't necessarily cultural. There are some examples, but it all kind of goes together, right? As brains get bigger and have certain abilities, things like cultural practices, like tools, like intelligence and that Mm self-awareness, they come along with it. So it's all part of it. How would you know to look at a reflection and know that is me? That's just fascinating to me. I mean, we can do it because we're literal freaks of nature. Right. And of course, we have talked about the mirror test uh, mm-hmm. in the past on the podcast on our episode 104, Animal Intelligence. But it would follow then that if this is something that they can do, it would be totally reasonable that that would play into their cultural practices, mm-hmm. right? Because they have another way of distinguishing themselves from the group, distinguishing their group from other groups, interacting mm-hmm. within their group and such. And so every ability that a creature has is going to be used in some way. And so if they have this ability, it's probably being used in some way, whether or not we know about it. Yeah, and it is only the Eurasian magpie, only the one type of corvid that can do this so far. Okay, I didn't realize, I thought there were more types. I didn't realize it was just the one. Cool. That I could find. Okay. Ashlyn had mentioned the crow or no earlier, and that is from Dr. Kaylee Swift. And thanks to some of her spectacular research, among others, we know quite a bit about crow culture and behavior. Dr. Swift has more recently centered her research around Canada Jays, but I first encountered her papers about crows, so that's what I'm focusing on today, because crows are awesome. Let's start at the beginning, the crow family unit. Crow families have a breeding pair who are more or less monogamous. In in every bird research that I've seen, whenever they have, like, quote-unquote monogamous birds and they actually do testing and stuff, they're, like, not monogamous at all. They're just socially monogamous. <laughs> in addition to this breeding pair, the family has several helpers, who are usually males related to the main pair. This behavior is formally known as cooperative breeding. These helper crows hang around, help with nest building, territory defense, food gathering, baby feeding, and general family stuff. Genetic research has shown that about 18% of a year's clutch of eggs may also be sired by one or more of these helper crows, hence the more or less part of the monogamy. (laughs) 
So why on earth would a bonded pair of crows allow for such extra individuals in the family unit? Aren't they disruptive? They pose a threat to the male not passing on its DNA, and they stretch resources in the area. Don't these helper males have an imperative to find their own partner and have a greater chance of passing on their own genes to future generations? That makes sense, though. I mean, especially if they're closely related, mm-hmm. then you you get um, kin selection. Going it's on. like yeah. the gay uncle theory. Yeah. Cooperative breeding does ease the burden on the parent crows. These helpers can fetch food for the new brood and deal with security threats so the parents don't have to. And this does contribute to the life expand and breeding ability of the matriarch crow, which leads to more baby crows in the future. Pluses also include the option of maybe breeding and the ability to take over the territory and learn how to effectively raise a brood in their own time. Also, the chicks they are helping to raise share some of the genetic material, as we're talking about the gay uncle theory. It's not a complete wash in the DNA sweepstakes. Baby crows. (laughs) Most human knowledge is passed on to the next generation through teaching and demonstration. So seeing other species do similar isn't surprising. These helper crows are learning techniques that have been proven to at least keep them alive through fledging. Crows reach sexual maturity between two and four years of age. So spending that intervening time learning does help. Crows and other corvids have also been observed to adopt other non-related birds into their family units. While several juvenile crows were left without family due to a West Nile outbreak, other crow family units adopted them as helpers into their own families. Crows have also been seen feeding and nesting with other corvid juveniles as well, such as blue or gray jays. They've adopted them in. It's not all food gathering and brood protection for corvids. They have plenty of time for cooperative play and jokes, both of which were learned behaviors that vary from family to family. Some crows like goofing on each other or nearby birds. Tail pulling is a particularly common prank. Yep, they sneak up on each other and pull each other's tails and run away. (laughs) I want to watch that. That sounds Mm -hmm. awesome. (laughs) Some crow families like to pick on dogs or human. Specific dogs or humans who have been known to give a good reaction in the past are often targeted, Mm. even after several years away. (laughs) I'm picturing one of the older helper crows nudging a fledgling and saying, Hey, remember Jerry telling us about that one dog who yelps super loud and runs around in a circle? That's him. Watch me pull his tail. (laughs) Prank ensues and the whole crow community laughs and laughs and laughs. I was so proud of the word crow Very proud. <laughs> I called it out the window while Ashlyn was throwing axes. <laughs> Just yelled crow-munity. <laughs> Ashlyn, I made up a I word. I made up a word. Crow-munity. <laughs> crows can use their talent for mimicry to also joke with other species around them. One study demonstrated that crows would mimic a farmer's whistle, and such mimicry would make the farm chickens come running out for food. <laughs> there being no farmer, the chickens didn't get fed. Once they sulked back to their perches, the crow would make the whistle again, and the chickens would fall for it every time. <laughs> there is no evolutionary reason for this crow to annoy these chickens. It wasn't planning on preying on them when they got tired. It's merely doing it for its own gratification. Such passed down information isn't only used for amusement, of course. Different crow species and different families use and create tools differently, as we were talking about with Laura. Some use sticks or grasses to retrieve food, much like chimpanzees have been observed doing. One famous study has to do with a New Caledonian crow. This species is native to, of course, New Caledonia, which is in the Pacific Ocean. And this crow is one of the species thought to be the most adept with tools. In an experiment conducted by behaviorists from the University of Oxford, a food bucket was placed inside of a tube. The crow was unable to reach the food because of the length of the tube. She then picked up a short length of wire, and after a few futile attempts to snag the bucket of food with it, bent the wire into a hook and lifted the bucket from the tube. The crow repeated the behavior in nine out of ten subsequent trials. 
Crow had seen hooks, but had never seen wires being bent into a hook. I don't know if that crow went back to teach the other crows, but <laughs> it seemed like pretty good learned behavior. Yeah, that's great. Other research into the New Caledonian crows show that they keep a family cache of their favorite or most useful sticks, and they pass them along to other family members. <laughs> These are the heirloom sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Grandma's rolling pin. <laughs> yeah. Family's coming over for dinner. Get out the good sticks. <laughs> crows have the ability to solve complex problems and pass the answers to other members of their community. Faced with a type of nut too hard for them to crack, Japanese crows drop the nuts into pedestrian crosswalks and wait for a car to run over them. <laughs> Once the way is clear, they drop down and grab their snack. Not only have they figured out how to use cars as nutcrackers, but they've figured out how to wait for the light to change to safely time their removal. Mm-hmm. Again, this behavior is taught to the rest of the family, and other crows pick it up from watching. And we don't see this in anywhere except where these crows have learned it. That's amazing. Everyone's read the research about crow gifting, right? Yes. There's a, one of those memes is going around on social media mm-hmm. right now. Our listeners might not be familiar. Oh, yeah. Well, researchers found that, well, this is not super common. There have been instances of corvids giving gifts, mostly in urban areas. And this is gifts to humans. We don't know about their gifting to each other. There was a child in Seattle who made a habit of feeding the crows that would visit their yard. The crows started leaving small items for the child in the feeder after they had finished their meals. The gifts were either shiny or small edible animals, because that's what crows like. And a former roommate of ours had read about this and tried feeding our neighborhood crows to get them to like him. And it didn't work out so well in our yard. So he tried further down the street, which is closer to where the crows were roosting. This also didn't work because the neighbor who lived there caught him feeding the crows and made him clean up the lawn and chased him away. <laughs> University of Colorado Boulder professor, Dr. Mark Beckoff, he worked with uh, Goodall in the chimpanzee projects. He's also studied corvids and described them performing various rituals to honor their dead. In one study, Beckoff observed magpies gently prodding a dead magpie with their beaks before retrieving grass and laying it near the deceased. There are many people who recounted also seeing this sort of service take place in other corvids, such as crows and ravens. As far as we can determine, these funerals are a teaching moment for the crow family. Dr. Swift's published research on this topic involved feeding crows and measuring their timed food response to either a dead crow, or a dead crow with a human nearby, or with a dead crow and a hawk and a human nearby. If the danger was perceived to be greater, like with a hawk and a human, crows preferred to eat in larger groups and take longer time eating the food, being more wary of the threat around them. Again, this information was passed through the family unit and among larger roosting groups, so that more crows became wary of the dangers of a specific testing area than those who were the initial contacts. So even after the testing stimulus was removed, crows would be wary of that area, and not just the crows that had been marked as those in the initial study. Hmm. That's a very high-level look at the research, of course. And for more information on this fascinating study, I do suggest our listeners take a read through Dr. Swift's site, which is corvidresearch.blog. We look at animal intelligence and culture through a human lens. We can't help it. We assign higher values to the intelligence and culture of creatures that behave and think like humans do. Even with this caveat, crows and other corvids rank pretty high on the list. They are funny, smart, thoughtful, caring family creatures— and they are worthy of respect and curiosity. You can be damn sure they are curious about us featherless bipeds, too. What are we talking about next month, Jeff? Next month, we are going to be talking about common questions. So we're all going to take a a few of the most common questions we can find on Google, and we're going to try to answer them. I'm scared. As you should be. (laughs) 
you will be. You will be. Want to talk about sandwiches? <laughs> sandwiches are beautiful. Sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches. I eat them all the time. It's Fred Penner. Uh-huh. It's a brand. I eat them so much. And only one of the type of sandwiches that he mentions is not vegetarian. So, mm-hmm. is lasagna a sandwich? No, that's a casserole. Why? Why couldn't a casserole also be a sandwich? Well, it doesn't use bread or a bread product. Pasta is not a bread. Of course it is. It's a flatbread. No, it's not. No, 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 bread. no, no, not even close. Nope. No. Nope. About cannoli. Uh, no, still pasta, still a casserole. Well, that's cannelloni. Oh, cannoli. Can- well, that's cannolis a dessert. Are also, yeah. Mm. It's a dessert sandwich. It's a pasta. Nope. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Oreos. It's, it's a literal it's sandwich, a sandwich cookie. cookie. Sandwich okay. cookie. I wanted to know if there was going to be a controversial But it is a cookie first, there. sandwich second. Well, you even literally just said there's sandwich cookie, which makes it a sandwich first. What about those horrible <laughs> peanut butter sandwich cookies? Which ones? There's like oh, the pirate, pirate ones? Yeah, I like those. So bad. I mm. I don't like. I mean, I like them cookies. as much as you can like any packaged cookie, which is you mm-hmm. know they all suck. But cannoli's probably more of a cookie than it is a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> is it a sandwich cookie though? <laughs> no, it wraps around a filling. It's a it's, burrito, it's a burrito cookie. cookie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening to this ridiculous <laughs> episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. I hope you've learned some things about sandwiches and also about culture in non-human animals. <laughs> And about the fact that we have bad opinions about sandwiches. (laughs) And we have no culture. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Good Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Life. Don't talk to me about life. I love the fact that you added non-human animals. It's 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 one of my pet peeves. <laughs> so good. I, I'm gonna say I am gonna say animals several times in this thing yeah. without qualifying it. So, some scientists. Oh, that's the end of the quote. I should change voices for the next thing. <laughs> the stuff you were talking about to open it. Oh, <laughs> you're the worst, Benjamin. <laughs> Gotta make a long form of your name. Jemberly? Yeah. Jemifer. Jembalaya. Gem.cbc.ca. Yeah. <laughs> Argentilian. Argentilian. <laughs> nice. Nice. How do I work into my opening from this? Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Stop. Please stop. We have two musical interludes in this podcast. (laughs) That's our new theme song, you guys. (laughs) My, My Kermit is very bad.